This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Tuesday, November the 15th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, the Ontario Disability Employment Network is hosting the Rethinking Disability Conference. Alex Smythe was on the ground yesterday and we'll share some highlights. The Care Possible online platform has been launched in Manitoba to connect people with home care providers. Megan Gilmore will tell you more. And Sault Ste. Marie has a new accessibility coordinator. Dorothy McNaughton fills you in with more information in her community report about Diane Morell. Nelson Rago stops by the show today as well, and we'll wrap things up with the weekly news quiz. We are jam-packed today, so let's jump right into our top story, and we'll begin abroad in Indonesia, where the G20 summit in Bali is underway. The Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment is aiming to spend $600 billion in the next five years in global infrastructure investments. U.S. President Joe Biden noted the importance of international cooperation. We're at an inflection point. Investments we make today will have far-reaching impact on the world for generations to come. If we don't make them, it'll also have far-reaching impacts if we don't make these investments. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau encouraged other leaders to think of Canada as a place to solve a multitude of global supply issues. Global investors have always thought about Canada for our resources. But you should also think about Canada for our resourcefulness. That's our true competitive advantage. Canada is rapidly becoming the energy and tech supplier a net zero world will need. The Canadian Chamber of Commerce is also present at the G20 meeting. CEO Perrin Beattie says Canada has a huge opportunity in changing the global economy. This could be Canada's moment that the three Fs, food, fuel, fertilizer, Canada has an abundance. And what's needed now is a clear strategy on the part of Canada to put those resources to work and to ensure that we're able to actually deliver those commodities to the rest of the world. The Prime Minister says strengthening ties into Southeast Asia is a key goal of this trip. Let's come back home where Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem reflected on inflation and raising interest rates. Macklem says reigning in inflation, it's not simple. Unfortunately, there is no easy out to restoring price stability. But once we rebalance demand and supply, growth will pick up, our economy will grow solidly, and the benefits of low and predictable inflation will be restored. Macklem did acknowledge that the bank raising interest rates has disproportionately hurt low-income Canadians. Lower-income Canadians will also be disproportionately affected by the slowdown in economic activity that is needed to rebalance demand and supply in the economy and relieve price pressures. Let's switch gears yet again. I'm switching gears all over the place. I'm like an 18-speed bicycle over here. Canada's Auditor General will release reports today assessing the Trudeau government's performance on a range of issues. Karen Rebo looks ahead. 
The latest reports to be released by Karen Hogan will focus on reducing chronic homelessness, emergency management in First Nations communities, Arctic waters surveillance, and cybersecurity of personal information on the cloud. Hogan has also done special examinations of Crown corporations, including the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Hogan will hold a news conference later in the morning. Ministers responsible for departments that are under review are expected to respond to her findings in a news conference of of their own. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. So that's the economy and some government operations. How about we move over to the health file where Ontario's top doctor is out with a recommendation to increase mask masking indoors. Dr. Kieran Moore says there are a lot of simple actions that prevent the spread of colds, influenza and other viruses. If you have any symptoms of infection, you should mask around those that are the most vulnerable to our uh, individuals. You should be screening on a daily basis. Good hand hygiene is going to be exceptionally important with RSV and influenza. It's a call to vaccinate against influenza and COVID as there's no vaccine against RSV. We need to protect our health system. We need to protect each other. And it's really getting back to all of those basics. And just a reiteration, no mask mandate in Ontario or recommendation, but Moore says he is considering the possibility of bringing a mask mandate back for schools. And as we look to the federal side of the health file, the federal New Democrats are calling for a public inquiry into Canada's pandemic response. NDP health critic Don Davies says now is the time to assess the government's response so that, so that it can be better prepared for future pandemics. That's why today... I'm calling on the federal government to launch an independent public inquiry into Canada's COVID-19 preparedness and response under the Federal Inquiries Act. As you know, whenever I share a COVID-19 story, I like to share some of the broader context for you. So... Active hospitalizations for COVID have held steady week over week at around 5,300. 5, there have been 293 deaths from COVID across Canada in the last week and over 20,000 new cases. And of course, we're talking a lot about influenza as well with positivity rates going up across the country. There are currently 78 hospitalizations across Canada for influenza. And one more story to get to, and this one's going to relate to our daily poll. Thank you for bearing with me as I ran through the jungle of news there. The United Nations says the world's population has reached the 8 billion mark. Let's pop some champagne with Charles de Ledesma. The projection came in a UN report released in July that said much of the growth expected between now and 2050 is coming from just eight countries. Half of those are in sub-Saharan Africa, Nigeria, Congo, Ethiopia and Tanzania. The UN says the populations in the region are growing at 2.5%. That's more than three times the global average. Still, experts say the bigger threat to the environment is consumption, highest in developed countries, not undergoing big population increases. I'm Charles de Ledesma. And that is going to relate to our daily poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. But before I give you today's question, let's just recap what we did yesterday. Having a little bit of fun as we spoke to Marco Flalo about Black Friday and Cyber Monday deals, we asked you, have you started your holiday shopping? 100% of you are keeners and said yes. 0% of you said no. Today's question also a yes-no question, forcing you into a binary. The world's population has reached 8 billion. Do you ever worry 
about too much population growth. Yes or no. And just before we jump in here, I do want to mention there was a book written in the 1960s called The Population Bomb, which talked about concerns about global population. And to a certain degree, most of what was written in that book has proven to be kind of bunk and hooey. But you heard it in Charles de Ledesma's report there. Consumption is a concern. And we know what consumption means is oftentimes a driver of climate change. So more people consuming more things means more climate change. There is a direct correlation between the massive surge in population growth that occurred in the 1860s in the height of the Industrial Revolution and where we're at today i.e. the global population was like 1.5 billion, and now we're at 8 billion about 150 years later, and we've seen climate emissions go up and up and up and up. I'm not blaming people necessarily. I'm not saying that having more babies is necessarily a bad thing, but to a certain degree, I do ask myself this question, how many people can we keep bringing in here and then realistically keep talking about keeping climate change under control? Because humans breathe CO2 together. That's how we be. We consume the oxygen. We breathe out CO2. We create emissions as well. Alex Smythe, you and I are sharing the same oxygen and CO2 in Studio 5 today. It's lovely to have you here in person. What do you think about this question? Yeah, Dave. So it's one of those things that I was thinking about this. And I, I get your point in terms of how, you know, there are going to be greater impacts on climate change and, and global warming. More people you have, more people putting more carbon into the air. I also look at it from food security standpoint, from space standpoints. And I think we have also learned to be smarter when we and when it comes to how we're building cities, how we are doing things like farming, how we're industrializing different uh, sectors, and we become more conscious of the environmental impact on those things. So I think there's certainly more space that we, we can we can take on more people. And it's now we're starting to realize, okay, well, we just have to be smarter with how we're going about population growth in terms of the impacts of it, where we're farming, while we're doing more more concert, uh, concerted efforts when it comes to farming. We're doing less environmental impacts as a result of it because we're more aware of climate change and those impacts. So I think we certainly can handle more people. It's just how we go about managing the greater population, where we're, we're having more people live, if it's still going to be in those massive population centers, or if we start to create new communities, population areas. And as, as the report said, you know, a vast majority of this population is taking place in Africa. And so there's a lot of work that still needs to be done to ensure that there's a sustained population in Africa because there's still droughts, famines, all sorts of humanitarian crises that do take place there. Alex, I like your optimism. Let's see if Eliza Rocco has the same kind of optimism. Eliza, what do you think about this global population? Eight billion? Does the number uh, make you nervous at all? It really does. I do not have the same kind of optimism. I, I This is something I think about so often, just the staggering amount of people that are on this earth really blows my mind when I try to wrap my head around it. But it, it's right now, sure, eight, mil, 8 billion, that's okay. But we're increasing at such a rapid rate and we're, we're not really slowing down all that much. And we are slowing down a little bit in more developed countries like Canada, like people are having less kids. But it's because like, it's too expensive to have kids. Oh, exactly, exactly. Um, but in places like Alex said, in Africa, like they're having more and more children. And it's just, 
I don't know how many people we can add to this earth without it becoming, um, it's already unsustainable to have 8 billion people on this planet, in my opinion, especially the density in which people are. Like Canada, we have a luxury. Toronto's quite dense, obviously, but the rest of the country really isn't. People are spread out. People have a lot of space. Um, but like in places like Toronto, you really don't. And what if we add like hundreds of thousands of more people here? Like it's, it, it's going to become unsustainable very, very fast. Yeah. When we're talking about a lot of food security issues, Alex mentioned that I think we need to be double cognizant of saying, okay, do we have the resources to treat these people? And the fact is like the raw calculations say we do, we're just not particularly equitable at giving them to people right? Mm -hmm. That there's a lot of hoarding of resources. Listen, we can't even keep children's Tylenol stocked on store shelves right now. We couldn't keep toilet paper on store shelves during the pandemic. We couldn't keep hardwood available at hardware stores at one point during the pandemic. It's sort of a new thing, a new domino that falls through and through here. So I I don't necessarily live my life in fear of this number, but I definitely think that if we're going to keep moving forward with this number, we need to be thinking about equity. So we're talking about major population growth in Africa which that's that's that that's fine that's a good thing but we need to be ensuring that places that may not be having the proper access to energy or sustainable energy or sustainable food we have to make sure that people are given empowered given the opportunities and empowered to build those sustainable systems around the globe so this is these are things that are coming up at the g20 these are things that are coming up at cop 27 these are the core questions of our time and yes i think it's fair to look at them through the lens of population growth the question is can we keep up with the population and right now, I think we're failing a little bit. Yeah, that. I think that we're still in the theory, the theorization and the ideation phase of those sustainable opportunities. Yeah. And the population is going to keep growing in the meantime. Eliza, thank you for your thoughts on this one. We'll talk to you a little bit later in the show. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you vote on Facebook. Let's go back to Alex Smythe, who has the National Weather Updates. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in St. John's, Newfoundland, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of rain or snow flurries and wind gusts up to 80 kilometers per hour. The high is 3. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's cloudy, becoming a, a, a mix of sun and clouds later, and a high of 3. In Montreal, Quebec, it's mainly sunny with clouds rolling in later, and the high is 2. Over in Ottawa, Ontario... It's sunny, with clouds rolling in later, and a high of two as well. Here in Toronto, Ontario, it's not a very pretty day. It's snow beginning this morning, then changing to rain in the afternoon, and a high of four. Over to Thunder Bay, Ontario. Snow flurries and a special weather statement due to snow squalls in the area, with up to 15 centimeters expected, and a high of zero. In Winnipeg, Manitoba. Snow ending this afternoon, then becoming a mix of sun and clouds and a high of negative 3. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, snow this morning, then cloudy and a chance of snow in the afternoon, with minus 4 being the high. In Calgary, Alberta, it's mainly sunny and a high of 3. In Edmonton, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds, clearing up later and a high of 3 as well. Up in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, Light snow today and wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour and a high of four, a minus four, sorry. And in Vancouver, BC, it's sunny with eight as the high. And finally in Victoria, BC, it's mainly cloudy, clearing in the afternoon and a fog advisory is in effect in the area 
and the high is 9. That's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Ganda. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, we take a closer look at one of the aspects of Odin's Rethinking Disability Conference. Jillian Johnston discusses the importance of career development. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. You noticed that Alex Smythe is joining me in Studio 5 today because Alex Smythe was on the ground yesterday at the Ontario Disability Employment Network Rethinking Disability Conference and conducted a whole bunch of interviews while he was down there. Alex, we've got a whole mess of interviews to share over the course of the next couple of shows that you conducted yesterday. Who is the first person that you want to feature? Yeah, so I had a chance to speak with Jillian Johnson, the director of the uh, Career Development Practitioners Certification Board of Ontario. It's it's a mouthful, um, but uh, a very important organization that really is pushing to make sure there's some standardization and some structure when it comes to offering out career uh, development advice for job seekers and employers. So uh, she was the first person that we were able to speak with, and uh, she she had a lot to say on the subject. Jillian, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. So first off, what is the CDPCBO? <laughs> well, if you can just get that out of your mouth, it's yep. a good thing. It's the Career Development Practitioners Certification Board of Ontario. So in other words, we certify career development practitioners in, in many different venues. Uh, we certify their competency. And so what role do they play in terms of uh, for uh, career development practitioners when it comes to job seekers? Like, what's that relationship like? Well, we're not a, a service. We're a professional body. Uh, but the point is that um, in our field, there is no real preparation. So there are a few community college programs that, uh, that train people to be career, career development practitioners. But many people, including myself of 45 years in the field, uh, just fell into it. And so, but the work that is being done by people across the province, across the country, is so important for all of their clients, both worker clients and, and employer clients, that we're trying to raise the bar of what CDPs need to be able to do in order to truly serve their, their communities. And so what is the session that you're going to be in, involved with today? Basically, it's talking about the future of our profession and the competencies needed by CDPs moving forward. So uh, over the last three years, a lot has been done. We received very big funding from ESDC, and that was in 2018. And for three years, work was done across the country to develop a new competency framework for all CDPs in this country and a new code of ethics, which is, I was on that committee and it's highly robust. So we're now moving towards national certification. And so right now there are five provinces who certify, uh, Ontario being one, Alberta, British Columbia, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. And what will happen within probably the next year and a half is that national certification will become available for all practitioners across the country an opportunity to be part of a profession, uh, 
a distinct profession, sort of like rehab is a distinct profession, uh, with the focus being on assisting Canadians to navigate their journeys through their lifespan around career and employment choices. Well, and that's such a, a important topic, especially given the conference that we're at, the Odin Conference, exactly. you know, uh, people from the disability community are wildly underemployed or unemployed. So, you know, how can you work within uh, this community and, and with this uh, focus to ensure that the uh, CDPs can help improve opportunities for people with disabilities? Yes. Well, I think that's where competency preparation comes so that helping people to acquire the skills and knowledge they need to work with their, their clientele, whoever that clientele is. And in this case, ensuring that people who serve the, the public who perhaps live with disability, in terms of what, how can they, if you think about the speaker this morning, how can they instill possibility when so much of our services and our funders, in fact, look more to what are your outcomes as opposed to what are the possibilities for people. And for many clients, including those living with disability, the message that they may have received most of their life is that you can't. And a CDP's job is to help people say, you can. And our job is to ensure that CDPs have training, have knowledge, have theory behind them, but also that basic, the most basic of, of qualities of any good CDP is empathy. The ability to put yourself in the other person's shoes even if you've never lived that life. For sure, and you talked about how there's the development of a framework, the, the policies and code of ethics. Does also attending events and, and participating in events like this help build a network for when you are dealing with uh, members of the disability community that you have a greater understanding of other opportunities, organizations that maybe CDPs can go to and be like, hey, look, you know, th there may be an opportunity here for you. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is that we, we are a massive community of people, but little known. And so any given Canadian who needs extra help may not even know that services of CDPs are available to them and by and large are free. And so part of the whole push towards national certification and uh, other things that are happening nationally is to advocate, advocate for the service, advocate for the profession, advocate for the people that we serve, and advocate to funders around what is needed to be able to ensure that Canadians can navigate their futures, because that's what it's about. It's about the future. And speaking of the future, do you see that the future is bright, given you know the work that's being done uh, uh, by you and and the CDP uh, board of Ontario to create more of a, a, a standardization, a, a, a certain level uh, of um, work and, and support that you know for people with disabilities getting into the workforce that it's going to be a brighter future ahead. Absolutely, I mean that's what it's all about. You know, if you look back 50 years the workplace was a very different thing and the contract between employer and employee is completely different. Nobody teaches you that. And then if you add on any form of barrier, any form of obstacle, perceived or otherwise, reality or otherwise, it, it makes life so much more difficult. So who is going to teach people what they need to do to be able to get to where they want to go? But even before that, who helps people to have the dream? 
if the dream has been beaten out of them, so to speak, and everything around you says, well, why bother? Well, our job as CDPs is to ensure that people have the possibility, the sense of uh, it's all right to expect a, a sense of purpose in one's life, a sense of meaning. And so that's our job, really, is to connect people in that way. And as you come to an event like this, and you're surrounded by people who are passionate about what they do, you can feel the energy. And so for all CDPs, it's really important that we connect with each other. I might not know things that you might know. You might not know things that the next person might know. And it's in building our networks and seeing ourselves as part of a network, a giant network of, of helpers in this particular area that I think makes all the difference for the clients that we serve. And, and, and not just the, the work-seeking work client, but also the employer client. Because helping employers to understand they're not doing somebody a favor by hiring somebody with a disability. They are hiring somebody to do the job. And so all the CDPs who do all that outreach to an employer as well, I mean, it's crucial that they have the competency to work with employer communities, with chambers of commerce, all the things that make a difference. You know, work funds this country. Our taxes fund this country. And so we need to make sure, like just as one Canadian to another, we need to be sure that people work and hopefully work for decent wages and decent jobs with decent conditions, and that's where we come in. We're sort of that catalyst to help people make that jump over. That's such a key point that you made there. So where can folks at home go to find out more information and, and see if there's maybe some services that could be available? For well, in any community, there will be some form of equivalent to a 211, which is a, many years ago, I worked at, for the Community Information Session of, Center of Toronto, but almost every community has one. And if they look up employment services or they look up career services, and then it's a matter of figuring out who does what because of the field is broad. And so there are private practitioners, there are community-based who are funded by different kinds of organizations, including government. Um, of course, there's the post-secondary system. There's so many different things, so then it's about what's there. And if people are fortunate to live in a very large urban community, there's a lot of resources. But you move outside of the big urban centers, and it's much more difficult. And then to find people who have specializations in working with people who have different kinds of, of barriers or or have different need for different kinds of accessibility. Finding people who have that knowledge, that's that's harder. But they're there. They are there. That's that's great. Uh, Jillian, thank you so much for taking the time chatting with me and uh, letting us know a bit more about CDPs. It's something I really didn't think uh, that much about until Nobody having this conversation does. and realized just how important <laughs> they can be. You know, um, for every person we help, we help their family, their community, we help the economy of this country, and we help the well-being of all of those. And so it is really important. And that's part of the reason we are trying to move professionalism forward so that the general public understands what we do and how we can work with them alongside them as their ally to help them move forward in their lives. Perfect. Thank you. You're very welcome. That's Jillian Johnston, director of the CDB, 
CDPCBO. Alex Smythe did that interview from the Odin Rethinking Disability Conference. Alex, where should people go to learn more about the organization? Yeah, Dave, they can head to CBD. Uh, see, I'm, I'm screwing up. On I'm that. messing up with the acronym too, man. There's a lot of letters there. I, I know. CDPCBO.org. Thank you, Alex. That's Alex Smythe with one of his featured interviews from Odin's Rethinking Disability Conference. We'll have two more clips today and two more tomorrow, so stay tuned. But coming up next, the Care Possible online platform has been launched in Manitoba to connect people with home care providers. Megan Gilmore will tell you more. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Manitoba Possible has launched an online platform to connect people and home care workers. Accessibility reporter Megan Gilmore is here to tell you more about Care Possible. Hey, good morning, Megan. Good morning, Dave. How are you? I'm well. So, Megan, how did Care Possible come together? So like you mentioned, it's being offered through Manitoba Possible, which is formerly the Society of Manitobans with Disabilities. And two years ago, they launched their own pilot project, which was an online platform to connect people who want home care services with people who are offering those home care services. They thought this would be an innovative way to meet home care needs. Uh, Then they found out that there's a platform in New Zealand that does essentially the same thing. So what Care Possible is, is it's a regionalized uh, version of a New Zealand pro- product called MyCare. And who is Care Possible for? Who is eligible? Yeah, so specifically Care Possible is only for people who use the province's family or self-managed care options. Uh, we've talked about this before in the past, family or self-managed care is where um, the individuals hire and train and schedule their workers instead of having that done through a regional health authority um, or an agency. And Care Possible actually organizes organizes all those things. So it generates schedules, it helps with all the paperwork involved with managing one of those programs. And from the New Zealand experience, a typical care relationship that is formed by this platform lasts about 24 months which is a significant improvement over just a few weeks or a few months that might happen if you're trying to procure care on your own. And it should be stated, uh, well, this is obviously created by an organization that works with individuals with disabilities, like seniors who need home care and are also using self and family managed care programs, they can also use this. So it's really for people who are looking for care. How does the process work? Sure. So I spoke to Lindsay Cook, who is the Director of Programs and Services for Children at Manitoba Possible, and here's how she explained it. Care Possible is an online respite and home care service uh, platform. And um, it, what it does is it connects people looking for care services with people offering those services in their community. It features interactive maps, filtering criteria so you can you can filter workers based on perhaps the languages they speak the skills that they have to meet your care needs their availability we know that at times receiving care can be a really personal intimate experience and that connection and that right match is really important so we help build those connections but at the same time what the platform allows is for you to build a network of support Megan. and that can be oh. no go ahead please 
And that, that network support, that can be really important. Let, let's say if you have somebody cancel in the last minute or something and you need to get a shift filled, that's where the interactive maps come in. So you can see where everybody is and find somebody who's close to your location. Obviously, these kinds of uh, working relationships can be very intimate and personal. So what's being offered to increase safety? Sure. So anybody who joins the platform as a worker, so someone who's offering care services, they have their identity uh, verified in multiple ways. And this would include things like uploading criminal record checks, uh, vulnerable person screening. So all those um, safeguards are in place. And then there's a rating and a review system. So um, kind of think like Uber, like we're all used to rating and review things. But any review that is three stars or less, so it's a five-star system, anything that's not a four or five-star review uh, automatically generates a ticket and a customer service team will call the individuals involved and try to like, determine why was this experience not ideal, uh, those, those types of things. And of course, there is the actual employee experience yeah. to consider as well. So how does the platform consider the experience of workers themselves? Sure. So I was asking Lindsay questions about, you know, does this um, type of platform encourage the gig economy and precarity in work? So uh, specifically, she said, one of the things that makes their platform unique um, is that there's a minimum amount that workers must be paid. So it's actually set up in such a way that workers must be paid at least the current minimum wage in Manitoba. Um, actually, the minimum that you can charge is minimum wage plus 5%. Care Possible has a 5% admin fee. That's what keeps it running. Um, and then workers would get anything else. Workers can also negotiate for more with their clients. Uh, they're also looking into buying insurance for workers and taking care of those things as well. And We're creating a new pathway to this work. We feel we are aligned with what the future of work will look like control over your schedule, control over when you work, with whom you work, uh, being able to set your own wage. Those are all things that we think this, this up and coming workforce are looking for. And so while there are challenges in recruiting home care and respite staff in our province, we feel that we're offering something that is going to encourage many, many more Manitobans to consider this line of work. Megan, was there more you wanted to say before we set up that Lindsay, uh, Lindsay Cook clip? Uh, no. Okay. You also spoke with a Care Possible user. Who is Amanda Kozak? So Amanda is someone who's been on the self-managed uh, program since November. Uh, she's a paraplegic and a wheelchair user. Uh, so she needs help with uh, pretty much all the tasks of daily living. And she's involved with several disability organizations, including doing bookkeeping for one. So she has bookkeeping skills, but she admits that the administration involved in self-managed care can still be a lot of work. So she signed up for Care Possible. As soon as she heard about it, she was one of the first people to do so. Um, and she's uh, just looking for home care because it's hard to find workers in the area of Winnipeg where she lives. Along those lines, how does Amanda describe using self-managed care? So she would describe it as managing your life like a business. And here's more of what that looks like. It's a struggle to manage your life like you're mm -hmm. every little thing if lunchtime um 
I have somebody who's supposed to come at noon, but I have an appointment that's going to run until 1230. Well, I have to call that girl and let her know that, okay, are you available a little bit later? Well, right. she's not available, then I have to call somebody else. Or I sit for four hours in my jacket because I don't have somebody to come and take my coat off when I get home at the end of the day. And what does Amanda want to see happen with Care Possible? Right. Um, so mainly she'd want there to be a larger community of support built across the province. And here's how she described what she'd like to see the program become. I'm just really hoping the program continues to grow. Um, ideally, every person in need could be matched with someone who's looking for meaningful employment and someone who's willing to help. And we can all kind of support each other. The more people that are involved, the bigger our community becomes. And Megan, as we look more broadly at the program, what's been the uptake so far for Care Possible? Right. So it uh, officially launched a few weeks ago. So it's been about 250 people so far that have enrolled. And that would include both people like Amanda, who are looking for home care, and also other people who are looking for, for work on the platform. It's pretty um spread out in terms of geographic location. So there's been people accessing this all throughout Manitoba. Um, it's especially important in, in rural areas. Um, but they're they're hoping to see it expand as, as it moves forward. Megan, we appreciate you taking a closer look at this as an accessibility reporter for us at Now with Dave Brown. Beyond doing the work for us, you also are a freelance journalist and you're also the host of the Connecting Disability podcast. And a new episode is coming down the pipeline. What do you have on deck? So we're speaking to Spencer Van Voden, who is the founder and editor of bcdisability.com. We're talking about... Uh, as we all know, there's a lot happening in disability politics and news in Canada right now. Uh, so we're going to touch on some of those current issues, uh, disability benefit, uh, MAID, that types of things. And then we also just talk about what it's like to cover disability. Dave, I thought of you because we do talk about language. Hey! We also talk about, this is a hot take, we talk about something that Spencer and I love and you don't, which is chocolate peanut butter cups. So... So many things, so many things up here. Wow, well, just going through my skeleton, uh, going through my closet, pulling out all my skeletons, Megan. I really, I really appreciate that. Yeah, chocolate peanut butter cups. People can enjoy what they like. I don't judge. They do. I, and, I just... and to be fair, you like chocolate and peanut butter separately. Mm -hmm. You just like them together. So, you know, like save your hate mail, people. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm just a man. I'm just a man of refined tastes. That's, that's yeah. all it is. Uh, Megan, we appreciate this. Thank you. You're welcome. Have a good show. That's Megan Gilmore, accessibility reporter and host of the Connecting Disability podcast. You can find the Connecting Disability podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Don't forget to like, subscribe, review, do all that good stuff and share it with your friends. Coming up next, Sault Ste. Marie has a new accessibility coordinator. Dorothy McNaughton has more information about Diane Morell. But first, a laid off Twitter employee is speaking out. Here's Derek Dennis with Tech Trends. Before being laid off this past weekend, Melissa Engel worked in Twitter's Civic Integrity Department, writing and maintaining algorithms designed to crack down on political misinformation. She says those algorithms made use of natural language processing technology. It searches language for uh, keywords or phrases which we had identified as belonging to political misinformation. So we would flag those tweets 
and a certain subsection of those, say 200 a week, would be sent for human review. And she warns as Twitter reduces staff, those algorithms could degrade. Over time, with fewer people there, they're absolutely going to degrade. Content moderation is extremely important. I know it's not like a uh, quote-unquote sexy topic, or some people don't think it's important, but without it, your, your, your platform can crash and burn. With Tech Trends, I'm Derek Dennis, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's catch up with Sault Ste. Marie community reporter Dorothy McNaughton. Hey, good morning, Dorothy. How are you? Good morning, Dave. I'm great. Thanks. So, Dorothy, some big news out of the Sioux. There's a new accessibility coordinator in the city. What do you want to talk in terms of Diane Morell? Oh, well, first of all, I know Diane personally, and she's just great. She's going to be wonderful in that position because she has experience, first of all, serving on an accessibility advisory committee for quite a few years. She's uh, worked for Spinal Cord Ontario. Um, Diane uses a wheelchair, so she's very aware of uh, lots of the issues and also lots of the issues for people with all different kinds of disabilities. Um, She's doing research, she's uh, trying to get up to speed. She hasn't been in the position very long, but she's also already had two meetings of the Accessibility Advisory Committee. What kind of issues do people, can people bring to Diane? That's a great question. Um, anything that, that people experience in the way of a barrier. Um, and so I think this is going to be a great opportunity because, as you know, and probably most people know, uh, the AODA was developed to identify, remove, and prevent barriers. And so, you know, there can be little things. There can be things like a, a dangerous street crossing to get to a bus. Um, there can be um, issues like for people with vision loss, like um sandwich boards on on queen street in front of uh, businesses that you can walk into you know yeah we know that Um, we know that one all too well dorothy yes that and maybe patios uh out on the sidewalk there there are lots of different barriers and for people in wheelchairs there are barriers that you know may not the city may not know about so diane is kind of a great conduit uh for information to get to the city so that these barriers can be addressed how do people get in touch with Diane? Um, she works uh, at the accessibility office in the John Rhodes Center. Um, and you, I know you'll be putting it up on the blog, but um, her phone number is 705-541-7310. Yeah, we'll definitely make sure that goes up on the blog as well as uh, Diane's email address. Dorothy, thank you yes. for bringing us that local update. I know there's a lot of people who are excited, and I'm sure there'll be no shortage of things for people to uh, bring to Diane's attention. Speaking of some stuff going on around the city, last time we spoke with you was ahead of the municipal elections in Ontario. Now, as I recall, you were pretty optimistic about accessibility at your polling place. So how'd your voting experience go? Well, um, yes, I was optimistic. And as you know, I had done some research, looked up information online. So I thought I knew what to expect. Um, So it it wasn't what I expected. Um, There weren't any problems getting into the polling station and speaking to people and, you know, no problem with ID or any of that kind of thing. But when I went to vote, um, 
I asked for a large print ballot, which had been on the website. Well, no, they didn't really have a large print ballot. They had a large print list of candidates, which you could refer to, which mm, is different. Mm, right? Yeah, that is that so, is quite a bit different, in fact. Yes. So they, they gave me the large print list, and that was helpful. That was good to have that. Um, but then when I got into the polling booth, well, actually, before I went into the polling booth, they offered me a magnifier. Well, first the magnifying sheet, which everyone knows is useless. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And then a magnifier, which wasn't a whole lot better. And then uh, when they gave me the sheet and I took it into the polling booth, it was tiny, tiny print. Uh, even my husband had difficulty reading it. So I don't know whether it's because they were using the automatic tabulators where the sheet goes into the machine and, and automatically gets counted. Um, but, uh, you know, so I had a lot of difficulty uh, trying to figure out the names, and then beside the name, they had a little tiny red circle. <laughs> and I had asked previously for a, a template. I figured, well, at least if I had the template, you know, I'd have more hope of getting mm -hmm, my ex mm -hmm. in the right place. Yeah. They didn't have a template either. So they need they need to look at more accessibility features. The, the other thing they tried to do was get me to vote by proxy. Um, and I said, you know, that is an option, however, it's a last ditch option because I want to be able to vote independently. Mm -hmm. You know, we they, do we do live in a democracy after all. Exactly. And they were totally mystified by that concept because they thought the proxy is an automatic solution. Um, so I think better training, um, also better promotion of what what they do have to offer because it was hidden on the city's website. Yeah. Um, and the way I think they can improve it, the, the one way is through online voting. Yeah, go, Dorothy, go a bit further because the, some municipalities yes. across the province were messing around with online voting. That's correct. And and I know of several people that voted. Our son in Sudbury voted online. Now, he, he works long hours. So even on election day, he might have struggled to get to the polling station. He voted on Sunday on his computer. Um, and, and I know... Um, other people, I know people who are blind who voted using the computers. So I think that's the way this city needs to go in alignment with other cities and, you know, use best practices. Yeah, to me, the online voting thing is the way of the future, especially yeah. for people, as you say, who are on the go. If somebody's working a 12 or 14 hour day and they forget their little voting card at home, how likely are they to get home? turn around, grab their voting card, and then go back to their polling place. Gosh knows where that might be. Online voting is certainly the way of the future. That said, yes. Dorothy, what you've identified to me about in terms of the small fonts and the automatic tabulators, I just don't understand why all ballots can't at least be, let's call it like an 18-point font, right? That, that would just be beneficial yes. for everybody. Like maybe that's not perfect for you or me, but at least that gives us a fighting chance. Absolutely. And you know what struck me was that the eight, eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper was half empty. Yeah. So, yeah. You've got so, the space. <laughs> so why couldn't it be larger? Very simple solution. You're, you're absolutely right. And look at the number of seniors in our population, too, who may be developing cataracts. That's my husband developing cataracts and and having more and more difficulty reading smaller font size. I think he told me he thought it was about a 
10 point font. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Like that, that's going to be tough. That's going to be tough for anybody to go on the 10 point font. Like there's no doubt about that one at all. Well, Dorothy, I'm sorry that your optimism got crushed a little bit, but of course we know that you are a lifelong hardworking advocate and I'm sure you're going to be working hard and we're going to be working hard and this will get better for sure. For sure. And yes. we appreciate, yes. we appreciate you sharing that experience. I know it can be very, very frustrating. But Dorothy, I know something you enjoy are the get together with technologies. And there's another one coming up tonight. So what's on the agenda? What topic is going to be discussed? Oh, this is exciting. SELA, uh, the Center for Equitable Library Access. So we are very fortunate to have Lori Davidson, the executive director of SELA, coming on our call. Um, it's at seven o'clock tonight. Uh, and you can find out more through Kim Kilpatrick in Ottawa if you need the contact information. Um, SELA is always uh, trying new things, you know, providing information about, uh, you know, new features on the website or, you know, any number of things. So she's going to be talking about what's new. Um, and then lots of time for question and questions and answers. And I know there will be lots. Mm -hmm. uh, we love the Center for Equitable Library Access mm -hmm. around here. We have them come on the show every Friday. Karen McKay, their communications manager, who we just yes. adore, who always gives us great literary news and features a couple books for us to sort of put mm -hmm. in our reading lists. Dorothy, I'm curious, what's your favorite alternative format of book? Do you like the audio books? Do you like a nice big font book, a braille book? What, what's, your, what's your favorite alternative format? I would say uh, large print books and audio books, both. Um, and, and our public library has not a bad selection of large print books, but a lot of them are older. And, and I've read through most of their collections. So I've started actually using Interlibrary Loan Plus. Plus, I, I listen to audiobooks, and I also can get them through Libby, which is part of Overdrive uh, through my local public library. Mm -hmm. So as, as well as the books that CELA offers. So yeah. th there are lots of options out there, and you know I'm a big library supporter. <laughs> you sure are. Yeah, we love CELA, but we also love local yeah. libraries as well. So go out and support yeah. both and keep literature yes. alive and well. Dorothy, thank you. Right we on. appreciate you taking time for us today. All the best to you and the family, and I think we're catching up with you one time before the holidays. So I'm not yes. going to start wishing you holiday well wishes just yet. Okay, thanks a lot. <laughs> That's Dorothy McNaughton. Just a reminder that if you do want to take part in this get-together with technology taking place tonight, you can email our friend Kim Kilpatrick at gttprogram at gmail.com, gttprogram at gmail.com. And it's a great way to catch up with Kim, who's also awesome. Let's wrap up the hour with a news story. Keeping you abreast of all these things going on around Ottawa in terms of committees. And let's get to a parliamentary committee examining Hockey Canada, Canada and its handling of sexual assault allegations. They'll hear today from a former top executive with the organization. Karen Rebo looks ahead. Bob Nicholson will appear before the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage in Ottawa today. Nicholson was president and CEO of Hockey Canada from 1998 to 2014. He has since been an executive with the Edmonton Oilers of the NHL. The national sports body has been mired in controversy for months over how it handled sexual assault allegations and settlements involving members of the 2018 World Junior Hockey Team at the Tournament Gala in London, Ontario. Halifax police are also probing allegations 
allegations of a group assault involving members of the 2003 team. None of the allegations have been proven in court. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. And while we're talking about parliamentary committees, not too much to share from the Emergencies Act inquiry yesterday. However, today, RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky is going to be on the stand. So there should be some very interesting revelations there, including some emails that have been submitted as evidence saying that perhaps the government of Canada and other local police forces did not explore all other avenues before invoking the Emergencies Act. So Brenda Lucky, the commissioner of the RCMP, will be asked about that today. So we'll have some sound from that one for you tomorrow. I want to backtrack to what I asked Dorothy McNaughton. What's your favorite alternative book format? What's your favorite alternative book format? You can always give us feedback on the show by sending us emails, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. You can find us on social media at Accessible Media, on Twitter at Accessible Media, Inc. on Facebook, or you can leave us voicemails, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, I'll have a little more sound from the Ontario Disability Employment Network Conference. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Tuesday, November the 15th, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, a Braille gaming system has been developed by Bristol Braille Technology. Nelson Rego has more information about that. We'll also have another edition of the Weekly News Quiz with Ryan Delahanty, Karen McGee, and Alex Smythe. And we'll continue to share highlights from the Ontario Disability Employment Network's Rethinking Disabilities Conference. Another interview with Alex in about 25 minutes or so. But we've actually got a little bit of an announcement here. Some news that came out of the conference. The governments of Ontario made an announcement. Here's Dr. Mary Lee Fullerton. Dr. Fullerton is the Provincial Minister of Social Services. This September, we delivered on the largest increase to social assistance in decades and delivered on aligning future rate increases to inflation. And I'm also incredibly excited to share that we've raised the earnings exemption threshold to ODSP recipients to $1,000. This increase will make it easier for those who want to work to enter the workforce and keep more money in their pockets. Under the leadership of Premier Ford, this government is working for workers. So let's unpack what that means a little bit in terms of raising the $1,000 monthly income standard. That means that no ODSP benefit will be clawed back in terms of financial earnings up to $1,000. Alex, I want to bring you in on this one really quick because you and I were talking about this this morning as we were preparing to play that clip and analyzing it. Although... It's still, when we're talking about getting people up to $2,000 a month, essentially is what this means in terms of total support. We know it's still not enough, but this is still a major, major step. It's still huge news. Yeah, uh, when I was in the room, when uh, this announcement was made and the video was played, people were cheering, and rightfully so. Like, it's a it's a major increase from what was the current standard, but I agree with you, Dave. We, we need to get to that $2,000 a month uh, threshold that had been discussed uh, previously and and we it's an improvement but there's still work to be done but it's better than 
it's then nothing. It's definitely a. It, it's definitely more in line yeah. with what the modern standard should be. The, the the old the old limit before a clawback kicked in was a couple hundred dollars, right? A thousand dollars a month of earned income does give people a little bit more freedom not to lose their provincial supports while still getting to do some of that work. That's a big big difference, and it all falls under the context of the conversation we're having around the Canada Disability Benefit. So that that's big news, and I'm really glad we had a chance to share that one today. And Alex, we'll talk to you again in a couple minutes for the weather. But for now, let's bring in Brock Richardson for the Sports Chat. Hey, Brock, we seem to find ourselves talking about the CFL a lot these days, not just because of the playoffs and not just because of the Grey Cup taking place this weekend. There was a blockbuster trade that was made yesterday by the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Yes, there was. And sometimes at this point in the week, after Monday and before, you know, Thursday night football, I sit there and I think, mm, what are we talking about tomorrow? And then, boom, something comes out like this. So the uh, Hamilton Tiger Cats have acquired the rights to uh, Bo Levi Mitchell. Um, they got a bunch of uh, draft picks and cash considerations uh, for this move. Um, Bo has played his entire CFL career with the Stampeders, he is currently 32, and this just means at this point that the Hamilton Tiger Cats have the first right to negotiate a contract with him. And to me, Dave, if this actually goes completely all the way through, this changes the landscape in the East big time. There is actually a formidable, you know, by name quarterback in the East, which to me, brings Hamilton up to the top of the CFL uh, without even playing a game, in my opinion. It just it, it, That's just how big Bo Levi Mitchell's name is and how much success he's had in the league. So um, he's got two Grey Cups to his name, uh, twice being named the um, most outstanding player, which, by the way, I love that. When they call it most outstanding player... I love that versus yeah. most valuable. Yeah. I'd like other leagues to do the same. So this is a big, big deal in the CFL. He is an excellent quarterback. There've been some injuries the last couple of years and a little bit of inconsistent play. That said, this is still a star, star quarterback who brings a lot to that Hamilton Tiger Cats agenda. And as we talked about the last couple of weeks during the CFL playoffs, the East was already wide open and this gives them an opportunity to really make a push. And, uh, it's kind of fun making a blockbuster trade during the week of the Grey Cup. The rest of the leagues uh, should get on board with this. Let's make deals during the season and during the playoffs to keep people's attention all week long. Brock, it didn't take much to keep our attention last night on Monday Night Football as the Washington Commanders dealt the Philadelphia Eagles their first loss of the season by just pounding the ball, pounding the ball and forcing the Eagles to turn it over. What an interesting game, and what a performance by the Commanders, who, uh, Brock, it seems like maybe that team is ready to make a little bit of a push for a wildcard spot. Yes, they uh, have uh, beaten undefeated teams in the last couple of years, as I learned uh, this morning when I was tying things together. Most recently, obviously, Philadelphia being the team. Um, I got I to gotta be honest, and this is a credit to exactly what you just said. The Philadelphia Eagles have had three turnovers all season long, period, end of story, full stop, until last night when they had 
three turnovers in one game. And some would say that, well, maybe it was, you know, sloppy play on that. No, I, I agree with you 100%. I think the commanders came right after it and said, we have nothing to lose. You're an undefeated team. We, we're going to get up. Remember I kept tell, talking to you a couple of weeks ago about there's going to be that one team that's going to get up and say, we're going to be the ones that are going to take that first loss and uh, do it. And it turns out the commanders did everything right yesterday. Their defense was unbelievable, forcing turnovers, taking advantage of those turnovers. And that's key as well. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes, sometimes you can turn the ball over and you can end up with a field goal. And it's just like... Uh, that sort of feels like you left a few points on the table. In this case, they turned the ball over, they capitalized, they did what they had to do, and Philadelphia is uh, uh, got one loss to the yeah. record. Sliding, sliding doors moments in games always fascinate me. Late in the second quarter, Washington had a fourth and one inside Philadelphia territory approaching the red zone, and they went for it, and they got it. If Philadelphia had gotten that stop right there, it would have been 14-10. They would have had the ball left with about two minutes. I feel like they would have gone down the field and scored, and they would have taken control of the game. Instead, Washington converts the fourth down, scores a touchdown, and then forces Philadelphia to go three and out, gets the ball back, and kicks another field goal before halftime. Now they had the commanding lead. The commanders had the commanding lead. I always find these sliding doors moments in football games so, so interesting. But the credit belongs with the Washington offensive line and the running backs last night. Brian Robinson Jr., who 12 weeks ago, Brock, was shot in the leg three times in a carjacking incident, is now playing professional football and dominating the defensive line of the Philadelphia Eagles. Turns out, guns less dangerous than football. Uh, apparently, yes. That's It was a crazy story when you hear about what happened there as well. But I'm, being fac- to- I'm being facetious, by the way. G- guns are way more dangerous than football. Yeah, maybe they are, of that course. Dangerous. Of, of course. But, uh, you know, when you talk about the uh, fourth and one, you could almost sort of feel, that's when you could feel uh, things kind of deflate for Philadelphia. It's like, if we get this, we, we pile on the you know momentum. But when you may convert a fourth and one as they did, they um, you can almost feel the... The energy just kind of go. Maybe we're not going to be undefeated. And as you as you point out, those sliding door moments can really turn it. And I do believe that that was the TSN turning point. To steal a <laughs> phrase from uh, one of our one of our Canadian broadcasters. But, yeah. Speaking of Brock, we've got a couple minutes on the clock here. You mentioned the letters TSN. Of course, uh, some Canadians love those letters. Some Canadians find them a little bit frustrating. We also have letters like Sportsnet and ESPN and ABC and CBS and TNT. There are lots and lots of places where people get to go watch sports. And sports fans have a lot of opinions about the people who call their games and analyze their games. So, Brock, do you find yourself gravitating towards a favorite sports network or a favorite sports broadcast team i'll tell you the honest truth for hockey it is sportsnet uh they have lots of good analysts we've had elliot friedman on the neutral zone and and i just love all of their insiders uh for um uh basketball i prefer sportsnet because i'm not a big fan of jack armstrong i i've never really been a, a fan of jack armstrong i think he's a bit over the top for me personally um and then for football i prefer um cbs especially when uh, jim nance and 
Tony Romo kind of get that game of the week. I think that Tony Romo has been an excellent, excellent add to CBS over the last couple of years. I do like uh, Joe Buck, and I believe his name is Troy Aikman, who now do Monday Night Football. But overall, that's my kind of pick. What about you for sports watching? I'm one of these guys who's pretty easygoing, Brock. I I like most of the tandems out there. I was really upset they broke up Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth with Michaels now doing the Thursday night game with Kirk Herbstreet and Collinsworth doing the Mike Tirico game on Sunday. I think Mike Tirico is such a star, but he just doesn't have the same thing with Collinsworth. So I'm, I'm a little bit agnostic about these things, Brock. I just flip around as I please. If I'm being totally candid... I tolerate most of these tandems and occasionally love some. I would say the best in the biz, though, is Kevin Harlan. If anybody wants to go to YouTube after the show and listen to a clip he did about a cat that got onto the field at MetLife Stadium a couple Monday Night Footballs uh, a few years ago on a Monday Night Football game, the way he calls that cat running towards the end zone and running up into the stands is professionalism through and through. So uh, no matter who's calling my game, give me Kevin Harlan and uh, I'm a happy, happy man. Uh, Brock, we got to get out of here, but before we say goodbye, you are the host of the neutral zone on AMI audio, which airs Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern time. What is coming up on the show today? Really, really great conversation uh, coming up with someone by the name of Katie Mitchell, who uh, was brought to us by Claire Buchanan and Katie Mitchell is the um, athletic therapist and physiotherapist for both the Women's National Para Ice Hockey Program and Team Ontario. And she also focuses her PhD on concussions. So we have a lengthy, lengthy conversation on concussions and the impact on concussions in sports in general, but also para athletes in general. And so she's got some real fascinating things to say coming up. It's about a 25-minute conversation, and it was wonderful. So... Mm -hmm. Look forward to that. Very good. The Neutral Zone coming your way Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio, available for podcast as well as on YouTube a little bit later. Hey, Brock, thank you for this, my friend. Have a great day. You too. That's Brock Richardson, the host of The Neutral Zone. Let's head over to Alex. Alex has the National Weather Update. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada, starting in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, it's snow flurries today with up to two centimeters expected and a high of one. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of snow or rain, and the high there is three. In St. John, New Brunswick, it's sunny and three is the high. In Quebec City, Quebec, it's mainly sunny with a high of two. Over here in Toronto, Ontario, there's snow beginning in the morning and then changing to rain in the afternoon with a high of four. In Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds, and one is the high. In Brandon, Manitoba, it's periods of snow in the morning, and then a mix of sun and clouds with a high of minus six. In Regina, Saskatchewan, it's foggy with increased cloud cover over uh, cloud cover as the day goes on, and a fog advisory is in effect for the area with a high of minus nine. In Lethbridge, Alberta, it's sunny becoming a mix of sun and clouds and a high of four. In Red Deer, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds with clouds clearing later and a high of two. Whitehorse, Yukon, 
Snow off and on today with up to 2 centimeters expected and a high of zero. In Vancouver, BC, oh sorry, Kelowna, BC first, it's cloudy with a high of zero. And now finally in Vancouver, BC, it's sunny and eight is the high. That's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, a Braille gaming system has been developed by Bristol Braille Technology. Nelson Rago will share some more information. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. The founder of Cool Blind Tech, Nelson Rego, is here to talk about some new developments in inclusive technology. Hey, good morning, Nelson. Hey, good morning, Dave. So, Nelson, let's start with Braille Bristol Technology. They've developed the first, their first ever Braille gaming system, the Canute Gaming Dock. So, Nelson, let's start with the inspiration. What inspired them to make this technology? Yeah, back in uh, 2011, um, the um, uh, company founders uh, wanted to develop a Braille machine uh, to reverse the um, uh, the decline in the uh, literacy for uh, the blindness community because that's uh, a big thing these days uh, uh, with with Braille just not being as prevalent as it should be. So that that was the objective was to uh, was to just uh, get people to be more uh, literate uh, with their uh, with their Braille devices, as opposed to what we're doing now with all these uh, touched uh, devices that we use. So when we're talking about games, this could mean a whole lot of different kinds of games. So what are some of the game titles that are going to be included in this? Yeah, they, they have a, a couple of games. Uh, there's a, um, a City Explorer game. Um, there's uh, a game that's called Snake. Um so, and then they actually have a feature where it allows the user uh, to actually develop their own game. So uh, that's the other cool aspect of, of this is that uh, uh, if, if there's a game that you have in your head that you want to actually create, uh, this device actually allows you to do that. Now, the company Braille, uh, Bristol Braille Technologies, they've been around for a long, long time. But I need a reminder about some of the other products and technology they've developed. Yeah, their first uh, machine was uh, back then. They touted as the, uh, the Kindle for the blind, so uh, it was the uh, Canute uh, 360, and that allowed users to uh, read books, uh, read music, and allowed them to uh, uh, read graphs. Uh, I think at the time, um, the device they had had nine uh, rows of Braille, which you know at that time was very unusual because usually you just have like one row. Um, so th that was the original machine. And then that machine spun off into the machine that we're talking about here today uh, to hopefully inspire uh, people that want to get into sort of programming or uh, computer science. Um, and even uh, with the tactile component, allowing people to sort of uh, develop their spatial awareness uh, with their uh, built-in, um, that City Explore app uh, that allows people to, to uh, sort of figure out their orientation and spatial awareness. So. Um, yeah, there's some cool features that allow people to sort of uh, uh, learn from the current machine. When is the Canute Gaming Dock going to be available? Uh, they're they're uh, they're on tour throughout the UK. Um, I think right now they're in London, uh, so they're they're kind of shopping around the device. In in their they have these little uh, sessions that they have around the, the country, 
Um, and then after that, uh, they're doing a crowdfunding campaign. Uh, I believe next week or next couple weeks, uh, they're planning to do a crowdfunding to sort of uh, see how much interest there is for people to actually uh, develop as this as an end user product. So it's um, you know it's 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 an actual device, and and uh, hopefully people will will be uh, more aware of it and. And uh, hopefully it'll get over here uh, because, um, you know, obviously this is started in the UK, but uh, uh, it'd be nice to see uh, that device over here so we could try it out as well. Well, hopefully it'll get, it'll get launched at all. I mean, it sounds like they haven't even started mass producing it yet. No, no, they're not, they're not quite there. They're, they still need, uh, the, you know, the, the funding behind it to sort of develop the product. Nelson, let's move over to your tech tip, and it's a really useful one for folks who are onto the iOS 16 operating yeah. system. This is a good one because every now and then you have a great idea for an email, but you don't want somebody's phone buzzing at 2 a.m. So how do you <laughs> schedule emails in iOS 16? Yeah, this is a, a really cool field. We're actually starting to see more of this with other apps as well, but uh, you have to have iOS 16 for this to work. And it's it's very uh, simple uh, thing to do. So you just launch your your uh, built-in uh, mail app in iOS, uh, and if you're uh, composing or replying to an email, uh, you would obviously do the select your your uh, person that you're sending to the the subject matter, and then filling in the uh, the draft area where you want to fill out the information, and then from there, um, uh, for a side user, you just uh, tap and hold the uh, the send button. Uh, for a voiceover user, uh, you do like a, a single finger uh, and then tap twice and hold um, for the, the pop-up to, to actually get uh, the send later feature. Uh, there is a default where it gives you some uh, automatic times, and then you can customize the time where you can choose the calendar, the, the time itself, and then, and, then, uh, and then it'll actually create a folder uh, for it to, to send later. Uh, you'll see that later, so you can actually customize it or just send it uh, directly if you need it to actually uh, send it more urgently. So, so um, yeah, like you said, there's a, a lot of us uh, who are blind that are a bit of night owls that have these great ideas in the middle of the night. You you don't feel comfortable sending it, uh, you know, early in the morning. Uh, so it's nice uh, to have this feature to send people. Yeah, not that I feel too guilty about sending people notes whenever I'm awake, but sometimes you know, people make presumptions at 2.30 on a Saturday morning. What was Dave really thinking about when he sent this email? So, yeah, sometimes it's nice for a little bit of incognito. Also, like, let's be fair. There are certain situations where you get an email notification first thing you wake up in the morning. Maybe yeah. you're not actually going to respond to that because you're going to go through your morning routine. You're going to have your coffee. You're going to take a shower. You're going to go to the gym. You're going to do kind of whatever, but yeah. then all of a sudden that opportunity, if that email comes in at, say, 9 o'clock or 8.55, right as you're sitting down yeah. at the desk when you get to the office, you might actually be able to sort of target when somebody may get to a response quicker. So there's some strategy to this as well, not just sort of uh, trying to keep up appearances. Yeah, and then with my email, most of my spam I get uh, anywhere between midnight and 5 a.m. anyway. So I have it so that it uh, screens that stuff out. So I, I never look at that stuff to begin with. Because uh, that that ninety nine percent of the time it's spam. You're implying that the email that I would schedule for you is spam, which Mr. Which you know might be accurate. Uh, Nelson, thank you for this. We appreciate it. Great, thanks. Take care. That's Nelson Rago, the founder of Cool Blind Tech. Coming up next, you'll learn about Project Search, an organization dedicated to career transition training for people with disabilities. Alex Smythe caught up with one of them. 
at the Odin Rethinking Disability Conference yesterday. So we'll share a highlight from that conversation. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's check in again with Alex Smythe, who attended the Ontario Disability Network's Rethinking Disability Conference yesterday. Alex, it's clear you spoke to a whole bunch of people over the course of yesterday. Who's the next person that you caught up with? Yeah, so I had a chance to speak with Erin Riley, who is a uh, nurse and founder of Project Search, which was uh, founded in Cincinnati and it is a a uh, transition program, an employment transition program for uh, folks with disabilities who are kind of in high school, getting to the end of their secondary education and want to try to transition to the workforce. So this program basically takes them for the final year of school and and teaches them life skills and uh, gives them an opportunity to get into an employment program. Thank you, Alex. So we're at the Odin Conference uh, 2022. We're talking about the future of work. Can you tell the folks at home a bit about Project Search and what you're uh, presenting here today? Sure. I, uh, I manage a program called Project Search, as you mentioned, and it's a worldwide program that partners with agencies, schools, and businesses to provide a really unique training opportunity for young adults with developmental disabilities so that they can gain the skills they need to transition to employment, um, typically after high school or secondary school. And can you talk a bit about how this program started? I have familiarity with uh, Project Search in Holland Bloorview. I, I, I visited that facility in the past and saw some of the work they've done there, but how did Project Search get started originally? Sure. Uh, You know, it's not a sexy story, but um, I'm a nurse and I was the director of the emergency department at Cincinnati Children's Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I think for me, it really was a social justice issue. Um, I was aware that we were providing a great deal of medical care to all types of people with disabilities. Um, And yet, Uh, once they grew up or uh, once they left the hospital, the only thing we were really allowing them to do uh, when they came back to us was to volunteer. Um, Despite the fact that we had over 60 training programs and we were the largest employer in Cincinnati, um, we'd never really included Uh, intentionally included people with disabilities in any of our training programs or in our employment programs and so I had the position power uh, to do something about that and so I reached out to the community I brought together people who um, knew about and worked with uh, with the topic areas and, and had the resources to make a difference and and ask if they'd be interested in, in teaching me what I didn't know and, and, and working with me to create a program. 
which we then brought into Children's Hospital. And uh, our first year was 25 years ago. We had 12 young adults who were 18 to 21, and they spent their entire uh, final year of high school inside the hospital. So they were there for nine months, uh, at Monday through Friday, and uh, learning skills, learning how to be adult workers, and uh, that was how it started. Why was it important to focus on students who were still in school and, and reaching the end of their, their high school education as the target for this transition program? That's a great question. You know, certainly there are lots of groups that can benefit from training, and uh, we just happened to choose one group. I, I'll tell you why I think it's an important group, and, and that is because education's important, and the reality is for young adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, there is a sweet spot, and that sweet spot for reading, writing, math, um, attendance, hygiene is probably at its highest when they are leaving high school, um, secondary school. And if we can catch them um, before they leave and get home um, and then stay at home and don't work or don't do anything, um, we're getting them when they're reading well and they, they're getting up in the morning, they're used to going someplace, they, they're, you know, they're, uh, it's just the right time and, um, and, and we don't want them to lose skills, you know, we, we don't want them to fall into a habit of sleeping till, till 10 so they don't want to get up early and, and come to work. Uh, it's a sweet spot, it, it definitely is. Um, and um, so it's really important. We, we also know that um, it's easier to fund a program if you work with a school because they have resources. And so we are all about braiding talents and resources. You know, how do you work with things that already exist and that already have the same mission and the same responsibility Rather than trying to do something and create it from the ground up, why not work together with people who have the same mission? Yeah, that's, it makes total sense. And as you say, too, it's, there's that uh, skill base that is still there, and it's still ingrained because of the routine of, of daily school. Oh, you know yeah. what? You just used the perfect word, routine. Yeah. That is the word. And so you want to capitalize on that routine and make the best of it. Um, yeah, that... Thank you for that perfect <laughs> word. <laughs> and, and, and so when they are finished the program, as you mentioned, it's the final year of school that they sure. go for the full year. What is the, the results that you tend to see from people who go through the Project Search program? Do they go on to meaningful employment afterwards? Yes. Um, we have a very high rate of employment, Alex. And, um, but I'd be lying if I said we were perfect because we're far from it. So, you know, it's funny. Um, our goal is 100% and we don't reach it. And, but we, uh, so last year we have a database. We, 
We measure our outcomes. We strive for 100%. We never want to take a single person into our program and fail. And, uh, but last year, uh, you know, we got about 75% employment. And we have a 700 programs. Actually, today, I think we have 715 around the world. And, and, and each of those um, this year, coming out of COVID, um, had an average of eight participants, eight interns. Um, I can't do the math in my head, but 715 times eight. Um, so we serve a lot of young people. Um, I struggle with that because that still means uh, we have a room for a lot of improvement. And, um, and we, we work every day to figure out how we can be better. And um, because people with disabilities have amazing potential. They are, they can be great employees. There are uh, industries and companies out there that need employees and we have a responsibility to, uh, to make that connection. And sometimes, you know, it's funny. Um, I, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately. There's this tendency on those, on the behalf of those of us who sometimes work in the disability field, you know, when we're not successful, we blame it on the person with the disability. You know, it, they were too hard or, um, or we didn't get enough money or it took us too long and, or they couldn't do the job instead of saying, you know, well, maybe I didn't figure out the, what I needed to do to adapt the job or find the right tools. Yeah, and, and that's certainly something, as I mentioned before, that I, I kind of witnessed at uh, the program at Holland Bloorview. It's just not only given some of the other employment programs I've, I've covered in the past and I've, I've seen, it's like, okay, well, there was a high success rate, but it's still that drive to get it to 100%. It's not, it's not being satisfied at 75, 80%. It's no, we want every single person to come away from this program having meaningful employment for a long-term period. Uh, you know, and uh, thank you. Um, you're so much fun to talk to. I, it, because it isn't just a job either. Um, you know, we could all go out and find anybody a job bagging groceries. Let's just face it. We could do it. Um, but most of us, including people with disabilities, don't want to bag groceries. And we don't want to wipe off tables. And people with disabilities weren't born to do the scut work that no one else wanted. And, uh, and it is unfair that they are continually uh, put into those types of jobs because it's the easiest job for us to find. Um, and especially when their capabilities are so much greater. But um, we have an obligation to teach them greater skills. And we have an obligation to go out and market those skills. And you know, at Children's Hospital, we have people with Down syndrome who are sterilizing dental instruments. And we have people with Williams syndrome and cerebral palsy who are working in our central sterilization department, putting together surgical kits. Have you ever had surgery? I have. Okay. So ask your question, how many, uh, how many dirty instruments or mistakes 
would you want in your surgical kit? Zero. I want it uh, also. Handshake on that one. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm with you on that one. Yeah. I would not want any mistakes on my surgical kit. Um, and you know what? Uh, if you work with a person with a disability, you're going to get zero mistakes on your surgical kit. And they are just as capable, if not more, of doing a perfect surgical kit than anyone else in that department. And they can do, people with disabilities are incredibly capable of doing really difficult things. Sometimes they need to have an aspect that is repetitive or systematic, but the things they are able to do are shockingly amazing. If we just open our minds to it. It, we're, we are the, we're the problem. Yeah. And yeah, I, sorry, you got me No, going. no, no, I know. You're clearly passionate about this, Aaron. I, I want to hold you quickly to this one. So from, based on my experience uh, from you talking about uh, how it started with the Cincinnati Children's Hospital and, and uh, my experience with, uh, with the program, seeing it at Holland Bloorview, are they all based out of healthcare centers or are there different centers that uh, they can uh, be run out of? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, no, well, no, they are not all based at hospitals. Um, it certainly, in the beginning, was what we knew best, and so probably two-thirds are still based in hospitals. But we have programs, uh, I just counted, we just did a program. We have nine programs on military bases in the United States. I wish we had some in Canada. Uh, they're great sites. We have programs on reservations. We have programs in banks, hotels. Um, parks, uh, museums, insurance companies, manufacturers, pharmaceutical companies. Uh, you know, we work with uh, Dow Chemicals. We, uh, we work in uh, just about anything you can imagine. That's uh, phenomenal. That's, yeah. uh, that's really phenomenal. So, uh, Aaron, thank you so much for you are taking so welcome. the time. Just talking a bit about Project Search, it's, it's a phenomenal project, and I'm sure the folks at home are going to uh, be excited to go and check out more about it. But. Thanks so much, Alex. It was fun. We were just learning about Project Surge, an organization dedicated to career transitioning training for people with disabilities, and that was with Alex Smythe. I'm going to tell you, I'm Ramia Amuthin, I'm going to tell you about what's coming up on today's edition of Kelly and Company, 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. We have our wellness chat with Frances Wong, and she's sharing tips on a smoother recovery if you get sick. Well, it's the season to be getting the seasonal flu or cold, and if you get it, she wants to share tips about how you can recover more quickly. Also, Dr. Larissa Moniz is going to be checking in with us. She's the Director of Research and Mission Programs at Fighting Blindness Canada, and she's joining us to talk about their second annual Eye on the Cure Vision Research Competition. This is a chance for Canadians to take part in deciding where the money goes for eye research, and it's a really interesting way that they're doing it. We're going to learn more about that. Also, AMI content development specialist Jim Crisco is joining us on our monthly voices segment. We're discussing his passion for video editing, comedy, and camping in the Rockies. Taking a break right now on Night with Dave Brown. We'll be right back.
back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI dealing with total technical collapse around these parts. So bear with us if this next segment is a little bit choppy, but it's Tuesday. It's the end of the show, which means we wrap things up with the weekly news quiz. <laughs> yeah. Apparently there is indeed sound coming down the pipeline. Let's see if we can try to make this quiz happen by welcoming in our contestants, Karen McGee, Ryan Dillahanty, and Alex Smythe. Hello, Karen. Good morning. Guys, I'm not hearing Karen, which also makes me assume I'm not going to hear Ryan. Hello, Ryan. Hello. Good morning as well. Guys, we may not be able to do a quiz here because if I can't hear Karen and Ryan, I'm not going to know their answers and we're not going to be able to do a quiz I could go one-on-one with Alex here, (laughs) which may be what we're going to do here. Uh, Well, just instead of us, like, wrapping up the show completely and and throwing in all the towels, let's not not quit it all the way through. Alex, what do you say we go one-on-one with a couple of news quiz questions here before we say goodbye? Yeah, let's do it. Let's give it a try. You know, we'll see how how, uh, top of mind I am on the news. (laughs) All right. So question one was going to go to Karen McGee. At the COP27 climate summit in Egypt last week, several countries pledged new financial help to poorer nations for damage caused by climate change. Which country did not agree to do so? Ooh, interesting. Um, There's a few at the top of my head, but I will ask for the options. Was it Russia, Germany, or the United States? Mm. I'm going to go with Russia. That is incorrect. It is the United States. They did not offer financing, even as many European countries promised to support poorer countries affected by climate change. Alex, question number two was going to go to you. So this seems very appropriate that it's staying with you. Buyers paid more than $1.5 billion last week, an auction record for which items from the estate of Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen? I, I did not hear this one. I'll need the options. Yeah, we were focusing on like dinosaur bones and Tyrannosaurus yeah. Rex skulls uh, last week on the show. So was it his six West Coast homes, his art collection, or his three super yachts? Um, geez, I mean, all of them are just ridiculous. They and all sound like $1.5 billion price yeah, tags. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I was like, oh, maybe one will stand out. Okay, so it's real estate. It's artwork or it is... Super yachts. Super yachts. Uh, I'm going to go real estate. No, it was the art collection. Alan was a prolific art collector with more than 150 (laughs) masterpieces in his collection. All of the proceeds went to philanthropy as he had directed. This question was going to go to Ryan, but again, makes its way to Alex. Alex, in last week's midterm U.S. election, one state set a record for the amount of money spent on campaigning. Nearly $375 million was spent in this state. Who was the candidate who, excuse, let's just focus on the state. Which state do you think received that kind of money spending on advertisements? Okay, so in my mind, there's immediately two. It's either going to be Pennsylvania or it's going to be Georgia. Both were hotly contested, both kind of were very high profile. I'm going to say it was Georgia. No, your other instinct was correct. It was okay. Pennsylvania where John Fetterman beat Dr. Mehmet Oz. But $375 million on one election campaign. It's a lot of money, man. 
yeah. every, after every one of these American elections where they're like, oh, yeah, campaign spending was like $50 billion. I'm like, mm, democracy's getting a little too expensive. Yep. Uh, Alex, let's jump into <laughs> round number two where you hold a commanding lead uh, against zero. nobody else. Well, no, I think, yeah. you got, I think you got one question, right? Didn't you? No, I, I, I'm I'm zeros across the board. Are, so we, o, are we 0 for 3 so far? Yes, okay. we are. All right, so yes, I'm winning 3 nothing. <laughs> the House always wins, as you know. Alex, the first question of round number two. Over the weekend, members of the BC Liberal Party began voting to improve the new name of the party. What is the new name being considered? Now, by the way, this was in my regional news update yesterday, but you were on the ground yeah. at the Odin conference. Yeah, so I'm, I, I'm out of the loop again. I'll, I'll have to hear those options. Was it the BC Alliance, BC Forward, or BC United? Ooh. I mean, BC United just sounds a lot like DC United, which is the uh, the soccer team in the MLS. I'm going to say, uh, what was the first option? BC? BC Alliance. BC Alliance. I'm going to go with that one. Incorrect. BC United, which you're right, does sound like a soccer team. It's a team. soccer team. Yeah, you just swap the B for the D. Okay. And we're supposed to know the results of that. Actually, by tomorrow was okay. the report on the membership voting on that one. So the BC United party. Uh, let's go to the question number two of round number two. In the wake of Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter, many users have jumped to which open source alternative social media app? Oh, I... I know this one. I just can't think of it at the top of my head. So can I get the options? Please? Is it Truth Social? Is it Mastodon or is it Ippo? It is Mastodon. That is correct. Yes. Alex with a point on the board. One in the win column there. <laughs> on Mastodon, you post a toot instead of a tweet. This one goes to Alex, originally <laughs> destined for Karen. <laughs> Yesterday, Russia announced they were banning comedian Jim Carrey and 100 Canadians, as well as this well-known author. Who is the writer? Hmm. Okay, interesting. Uh, Paul, Paul loves to put these questions where there's a specific answer when there could be 100 specific answers. Yeah, exactly. Now, is this a Canadian author? Or can I ask for that kind of clarification? Uh, based on Paul's options... Which one of them is American? Um, <laughs> Not necessarily. Okay, I'll ask for the options just to make it more clear. <laughs> oh, <come on. laughs> Margaret Atwood, Stephen yeah. King, or Douglas Copeland? You know, I was going to uh, say Margaret Atwood. That's correct. Okay. Russia's foreign ministry announced Monday that 100 Canadians have been added to the list of people banned from entering the country in response to sanctions against Russia by Canada. We now move into round number three, where I believe you're making a comeback here, Alex. I believe it's you two and the game four. So the game is at four and you're yeah. at two. So still lots of opportunities for you to jump in here. So Cole's CEO, Michael Gass, announced last week, or Michelle Gass announced last week, that she's leaving the company to become president of which clothing firm? This one was vaguely familiar. I will need the options. Was it Nordstrom, Eddie Bauer, or Levi Strauss? I'm going to go with Nordstrom. That is incorrect. The game now holds a 5-2 to two lead and a commanding <laughs> advantage with two questions left. Investors were pushing for a shakeup of Cole's management. Alex, it's crunch time now. Time, I know. Like now, now you can't even be asking for options. You got to try to be swinging for the I, fence. I know. I got to go for this. Is clearly why I need Karen and Ryan here because I can <laughs> steal from their their failed dancers that I can like whittle it down. Oh my gosh. Okay, Princess Martha Louise is no longer representing which country's royal family? I will go with the Netherlands. 
Ooh, so close. It's Norway. Norway. The options would have been Norway, Belgium, or Denmark. So I guess Holland wasn't even really there it for you. But, uh, yep. you okay. know, Norway, Netherlands, it's in, it's in the There's vein. Yeah, no. The princess will instead focus on alternative medicine, a business she runs with her fiancé, self-professed shaman, Derek Verrett. So there you go. Giving up on royalty to be a, a shaman. S- shaman. Yeah. Eh, you know, free to each their own. Yeah. Uh, Okay, this was one from the world of sports. Okay. And I missed this one. Typically, I'm usually on this, but I'm off. I missed this one. This Major League Baseball team announced Caroline O'Connor as its new president of business operations. What team was it? Interesting. Yeah, I I didn't hear this one either. I'll, I'll take the options. The options are the Seattle Mariners, the Miami Marlins, or the Atlanta Braves. I'm going to go with the Miami Marlins. That is correct. Yeah. Alex, making the game a little more competitive down the stretch here. The Marlins announcement made them the first U.S. major sports franchise to have women serving simultaneously as president and general manager. Miami made history by hiring Kim Ng as general manager in November of 2020. Alex, we have time for the tie-breaking question. Even though there is no tie to break. Last question. Which actor... Well, you can you can see the answer through my paper. I, I'm can't not you? looking. I'm, okay. I'm looking at the camera. You promise? No, I my peripheral vision is, is a good uh, cheap proof uh, blinder for me. <laughs> Alex, which actor who played a major character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe was named People's Sexiest Man Alive last week? It was Chris Evans. That is correct, and that is also the correct assessment of Chris Evans. Best biceps in the game. Best biceps in the game. The other options were Chris Hemsworth, who also probably would have had a shot at I, that. Or Tom Holland, who had no shot at all. That is not the sexiest man alive right there. That's just, that's just you know, a dweeb. And with that, the winner is... Me. I won. Yep. I'm the winner. Quizmaster finally takes home a big W with the weekly news quiz. Uh, Alex, thank you for that. Thank you for playing along as uh, we had some major technical snafus and meltdowns around this studio. So big thank you to Eliza and Bruce and Dan and Kingsley and Leanne and Ray and our tech services team who tried to uh, bail us out but couldn't quite get all the hamsters back onto all the wheels for us. And we want to thank you for your patience as you deal with our perpetual cycles of technical madness here on now with dave brown we promise you that we're working on it and i promise you hopefully that we'll be back again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m eastern time for another edition of the show with more great interviews that alex did at the ontario disability employment network's rethinking disability conference two more interviews coming your way from some of the great folks who are on location as that conference continues to take place in the greater toronto area over the next few days until 9 a.m tomorrow I'm Dave Brown, reminding you to play safe, play fair, don't throw your computers out the window, and don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. 
Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.